You've Met with a Terrible Fate, a podcast on game studies and video game culture. I'm Stefan Heinrich Simon, a game study scholar from Germany. I'm Aaron Saduko, the founder of With a Terrible Fate. And I'm Dan Hughes, an analyst on the site. And you can find us every Sunday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you like to listen. I must apologize in advance because I might be a little bit under the weather, a little bit slow-brained today because I'm still suffering from some, I'm going to say mild effects of my second corona jab. Uh, but I just wanted to use this opportunity to, you know, call onto all of our listeners out there. If you are in the situation that you're thinking maybe about getting vaccinated and you haven't taken care of it yet, then this is now the ideal time to do it. I mean, I don't know how it is in the US, but in Germany, at least we've, we're still quite a ways off from reaching that critical hallmark of reaching herd immunity or the, the, the amount of vaccinations that we need in order to put a stop to this uh, pandemic. And uh, I, just, I just think that it's n now is the time to do it because in, in autumn, the numbers will rise significantly again and we'll be in trouble if not enough people go out there and get vaccinated now. Couldn't agree more. I, I know that being in the U.S. where we've been fortunate enough to have the option to be vaccinated for a while, it's just great stuff on to see other places like Germany now being able to make it available to so many more people. So hopefully that trend continues. Hopefully, as you said, everyone who's able to um, is able to actually, you know, takes the time and gets vaccinated. It's such an important um, public health matter. And really you know, hopeful that the world can, in fact, get back to normal soon uh, if everyone goes ahead and gets vaccinated. Yeah, I mean, we are a fully vaccinated podcast now. We could technically sit in the same room and podcast together if we were not in diff completely different countries on this planet. <laughs> yes, but you know what? You know what will facilitate that happening if everyone gets vaccinated so that we can travel freely amongst countries. How yes. about that? that will <laughs> there you go. That's it. Do it for the podcast. Do it for the podcast, guys. I'll tell you, <laughs> listeners, I'm uh, I'm excited for hopefully everyone getting vaccinated and helping the world to get back to normal because it's momentum like that that allows regularly scheduled in-person events to start happening again, like the gaming conventions that I know so many of us and certainly everyone with a terrible fate looks forward to, like PAX West, uh, which happens every year in Seattle uh, over Labor Day weekend at the start of September. And I'm also happy to be able to share with you, our listeners, that With a Terrible Fate will be at PAX West. Uh, if you are too, I hope you come and say hi. We're actually going to be giving two presentations, two of our kind of mainstays that we've been fortunate enough to give uh, at many different venues at PAX across the last few years. In one panel, we'll be talking about horror storytelling and its dynamics in video games. And at another, we will be talking about the illustrious Dan Hughes's series on the video game canon, um, posing the question of which games deserve to be remembered as the great books of gaming, so to speak, and actually having the audience choose and debate with us uh, a particular game and whether or not it deserves admission into that canon of video game storytelling. So I'm tremendously excited. Uh, Dan, I imagine you are too. It's been a while, man, since we've uh, done a con like this together. Yeah, I'm excited to get back to Seattle and see everybody, that's for sure. It's going to be an in-person event, so it's not going to be online. That's right. Yeah. So, and, and kudos to PAX. It's worth shouting them out too. They're being really thoughtful about safety precautions. It's going to be a much more limited admission than PAX West usually is. Everyone vaccinated or not is going to be required to wear masks. There's a lot of sanitation practices going on. So they're being very thoughtful about it. But yeah, it's going to be, uh, I, I think their first in-person convention because they did the online one earlier this year because of, you know, ongoing safety concerns. And because frankly, they started it last year with Corona and, and everyone really liked it. Uh, but yeah, hopefully this is the harbinger of slowly but surely getting back to normal and some in-person conventions. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad to hear that because Gamescom in Germany is going to happen at the end of August, I think. But that's still going to be entirely online. It's just, I mean, Gamescom generally is so huge so big, that it would yeah. be, it would not be possible to do that as an in-person event. And um, I'm looking forward to the Gamescom Congress, which is an event, an academic uh, uh, discussion about you know video game culture that I will attend as well. I don't know yet um, exactly 
uh, what, whether I'll be able to bring anything to the show uh, from from this, but uh, we'll see. We'll see by the end of August. That reminds me, Dan. Um, I think this is the first podcast episode, isn't it? Since you went on your adventure to the um, the Retro Games Con in Texas. Yeah, stay tuned. That's my uh, side quest for today. Oh, exciting! Tell you all about Game Fest in Austin. There you go. Speaking of in-person conventions. Yeah, we're going to have some interesting side quests later on. First, we want to mention, though, that at With a Terrible Fate, we strive to give everyone the tools to understand and appreciate video games as a form of storytelling. And that is why this show is free and independent. You won't encounter any advertisements. You won't encounter any paywalls. And instead, we rely entirely on your support. So if you wish to contribute to making this show happen, then you can go to patreon.com slash with a terrible fate to find out more. Our main story today is about maps, about how they relate to helping players navigate the game worlds or how they might interfere with a sense of presence in presence in game worlds. Uh, the latter is an experience that I that I often have because I must say that what what brought the subject on was my persistent struggle with mini maps. Um, <laughs> I'm currently playing uh, Yakuza Like a Dragon. And uh, just like in any open world game, there is a minimap in in Yakuza uh, that shows you certain spots that you can enter and NPCs and such things, enemies that approach. And I just find navigating by minimaps uh, such a shame, especially when the worlds are so beautifully designed, like it is the case in Yakuza Like a Dragon. But you can also take, you know, GTA as an example pretty much any open world game that has a minimap. I always have this struggle that I find myself gl glancing over at the minimap way too often and I stop really appreciating the beauty and the effort that went into designing the actual game world. Is that an experience that the two of you have made as well? I'll often find that um, it minimaps will put the... Uh the game portion of the game very front and center for me where it makes it very objective based. And I think like, like you're saying, Stefan, it takes away from the enjoyment of, especially in a game like Yakuza Like a Dragon, where they've recreated this sort of suburb of Yokohama. Um, and it's just really interesting to walk around and, and see what they've, see what they've put together. I think for me, what it can often lead to is if you're looking to play a role in a game, I do think it can sometimes interfere with uh, with playing that role because you're more focused on almost the the I don't want to say like the meta gaming of looking at the mini mini map, but it does kind of take it, it it removes you at least one layer from portraying this character or identifying with them or even just standing next to them as you know sort of the avatar in the world where you feel kind of confined to the mini map and where it's guiding you. Yeah, similarly, guys, you know, I, I think maps in this regard that we're talking about right now, it's it's easy just to think of them as some kind of abstracted representation of the fictional world that pertains to a video game, right? So just a, a different way of looking at its content and relating to it that oftentimes, uh, like you're saying, Dan, feels a little more gamey and a little less based in the fiction than what you're able to see either through the eyes or the camera perspective on the avatar, right? Uh, and as I was thinking about ways in which this has impacted me, a uh, kind of similar example I have in terms of making it more about the metagaminess of it, as you say, Dan, is actually with Code Vein. <laughs> I was thinking back on that because it has a really interesting map-based mechanic for filling in the map as you progress through an area. So as your avatar is located in different places on the map, uh, the, your, your mini-map and the overall map of the location goes from having just no content filled in to gradually creating a map. And so I, I found myself, especially as I tried to 100% complete Code Vein, thinking much less about the actual content of the fictional world and almost just watching that representation of my avatar on the mini-map and tracing the borders mm, of the map. The little triangle. To, yeah, exactly, to fill it in and make sure I didn't miss anything. Exactly. Yeah, I, I can totally relate to that. Yakuza does that too, actually. So you have uh, on the overall map, on the world map, I'm going to say, which is really, as Dan said, just a map of uh, recreation of uh, Yokohama, 
uh, it, you basically have this kind of yeah fog of war thing where only the areas that you've already been to are uh, like contain all the information and everything else is kind of grayed out and you have to walk around and uncover the map. So I think in this way, uh, maps are also a very useful way of indicating progress. But uh, what what is more um, something that that I'm that I'm struggling with is if I have a game in which in which I have a mini map, that mini map will give me orientation. It will help me, for example, see at first glance which buildings I will be able to enter. Where's a where there's a store, you know, where there's maybe in the case of Yakuza a, ta a taxi, they function as quick travel points. Um, but if I turn off the minimap, which is something that I always do, I always the first thing I do in any open world game is I turn off the minimap. I don't want to see that shit. <laughs> it's like, I want to feel like I'm 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 part of this world, you know. And and then I often struggle with orientation because uh, then I just miss these things, and it's not always clear by looking at the game world where interesting spots or spots that you can interact with are. So basically, this I struggle with finding a balance between. The I'm going to use the the evil word here that we've discussed a couple of uh, a couple of episodes ago already. Immersion. I struggle Ooh. with. <laughs> I struggle with immersing myself in the in the the atmosphere of the fiction and of the fictional world, on the one hand, and identifying the important uh, interactive uh, points on the other hand. Basically, the struggle for me because I, I guess it comes down to, you know how. Uh, maybe a counter to that would be well then you know aren't you aren't you trying to progress in the world and the minimap is there to help because it's so sprawling so you're trying to find it uh you're trying to find your way through the map but i think for me um often the the games where i struggle the most with minimaps are games where the story is inextricably linked to the place and yakuza like a dragon is very much so the story of kasuga ichiban becoming familiarized with this this little ward of Yokohama and kind of we find out like making it his own. And so in that sense, the, the narrative is leading you in this direction of, well, shouldn't you also then become familiarized with the, the locations and the places. And I do think that there is um, a kind of disconnect when you're solely relying on the, the little triangle to guide you to the next purple uh, circle that you have to find for the story to progress. So I, I definitely understand the struggle with it. So th this is the thing for me, though, and I think tying it to my <laughs> very vocal and recurrent frustrations with immersiveness is is actually really helpful for zeroing in on kind of my take here. Because I think everything that you guys have said is totally right for games where the interaction with the story is predicated on the player imagining herself as the avatar, right? The fact of the matter is, I think, ultimately, the way in which a game's fictional world is represented to the player, whether that's something like, you know, a first-person versus third-person perspective or these abstract representations of maps that an avatar might or might not have access to, right? That's just one lever to pull in video game storytelling in order to influence or change the nature of the avatar player dynamic and that relationship, right? I, and I think one of the things that makes this so interesting for me is that in cases where you know, you're given a map or some kind of information that the avatar wouldn't necessarily have or that causes you to relate to the game in, in a different way. I don't see that as an intrinsically bad thing. I think it just creates an epistemic asymmetry between what the avatar knows and understands about its world and what the player knows and understands about that world and how the player chooses to relate to that. And a lot of games can do like radically interesting things with their storytelling based on something as simple as that. Right. Uh, one example I was thinking about getting ready for this was um, Final Fantasy IX, which is so funny. This, so this this is like another issue altogether, and I don't know what this says about maps. But uh, as as listeners know, I've been playing through Final Fantasy IX for a while, and I would have put my hand on a Bible and sworn to you that it had mini maps. It does not have mini maps. I was playing more of it last night, and that's just a, a patent lie. It does not have any kind of navigation like that, right? But what it has is 
a, a really similar, I would posit, representation of its world with respect to the player's perspective on it versus the avatar's perspective on it, right? Because one of the overwhelming motifs in Final Fantasy IX is this idea of theater, right? It opens with this play that's being staged by Zidane and his pirate cohort, right? Um, Kuja talks about his plot as a play that he's enacting, right? And there's a, a lot of really interesting, like, theatrical tropes and soliloquy throughout it, right? And one interesting downstream effect of that is that the player often acts upon the world as though she were looking at a stage, right? In the sense that she will see certain aspects of the environment in which the avatar is embedded and she can direct Zidane around it. But part and parcel of each of these environments is the fact that a lot of the paths and treasures that exist within a given map are hidden from the player's perspective. So presumably Zidane would be able to see it, but it's harder for the player to find it and they have to navigate around in order to do so, right? And so I think those nuances and actually differentiating the perspective in a case like Final Fantasy IX can actually reinforce this, you know, idea that the player is actually the viewer of a play rather than someone who's role-playing as Zidane, right? That's just one example, but I think it's it's a really interesting way to get gamers into this mindset of thinking about the player's role as something that can be distinct from the avatar. And oftentimes, as, as we've seen in our previous discussions and a lot of the work on With a Terrible Fate, it can be hard for the first time to start thinking that way if you've only been thinking about video games as a way for you know role-playing an avatar's role. And so I, I think that's really interesting and a fruitful way to get into that discussion. I think that's very much right. And I do think that Final Fantasy IX is an excellent example for that exactly because of this, all these allusions to theater. Yet, at the same time, I would argue and maybe defend my usage of the term immersion here without going into the entire rabbit hole of this discussion, <laughs> that uh, most games, I would say, most games try pretty hard to, uh, to reinforce the assumption that you as a player identify or ought to identify with the avatar um, so that the avatar is basically your your eyes and ears your hands uh, in the way you interact with the game world um, maybe presence here is a is a better term than uh, immersion um, because I, what I always feel like is I want to explore the world and um, I want to feel like as I am a part of that world. And it makes it harder for me if I have this epistemic disconnect where I feel like I'm not actually interacting or exploring the world, but I'm exploring a somewhat symbolic abstraction of that world. And that's what, that's what I struggle with, you know? I'll say too that I think that um, the kind of I actually find that Like a Dragon is a really good example of, um, I think it, it feels that way up front. And then it's it's almost insidious how you kind of become familiar even with the minimap. And I think the way that the way that, that game does it, um, even compared to, so I'm playing through Yakuza 0 now, I'm, I'm going back mm. to the start, even compared to that where there are certain moments where the map is fairly small of Kamurocho. And... I just finished this uh, uh, main quest where there is no guiding light on the minimap. You have to ask people in town to try to figure out what's going on with this real estate company. And I think that that made me think about how Like a Dragon always will have uh, sort of the, the marker on the map to lead you to the next objective. But it's always preceded by Ichiban speaking with his cohort to try to figure out what needs to happen. And those people who are more intimately familiar with the area are kind of his, you know, Dragon Quest-like guide to say, you know where we should go? We should go here. It's right in this area of town. And sort of, I think that what I like about that is that it feels more connected in the sense that the minimap is almost just a reminder at that point instead of a full-on guide. And I think that uh, the consonance with the story makes that more palatable to me. Yeah, I, th I think that idea of whatever um, relationship between map player and avatar is established within a game, it just needs to be narratively motivated. I think that's what it boils down to for me as well. Um, and oftentimes it's not, but oftentimes I think if we 
if we step back as gamers and just pose the question of, all right, given that the map is like this, what can I learn about my relationship to this story and the avatar's relationship to this world that he or she is exploring, right? I think that mode of inquiry on saying is kind of a path to unlocking a new understanding of a game that might not always be immediately obvious if we're just you know, approaching it as a role-playing opportunity, right? I would actually argue, Stefan, that many, many games, once we pose that question, will at least have interesting nuances to the difference in the way that the player understands the world versus the avatar, even if at first blush it seems like a role-playing opportunity. I mean, it's it's really interesting to even think of a game like Returnal, right, that I know we all played recently uh, and that Dan at least played part of, right? Because, like, you know in many ways in terms of what people think is quote unquote immersive or a really engaging world. I mean, you know, high fidelity graphics, showcase for the PS5, blah, 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 you name it, right? But it it seems like, at least to me, a misunderstanding of what's going on there to say you're role-playing as Celine, right? Uh, which is interesting because the minimap there is actually much more diegetic than minimaps often are, right? It's a piece of her suit. It's part of her navigation system. It can be messed up as her suit gets corrupted by malfunctions, right? Or something even as simple as, you know, let's take another Final Fantasy off the shelf, Final Fantasy X, right? Where it might seem like a really great opportunity to role, to role play as Titus, right? Especially when it's, again, this showcase for all of the new capabilities of the PS2. The world is much more graphically robust than it was before, right? But I think, again, once you're able through a map or other means to interrogate the relationship between player and avatar and not suppose that it's just one-to-one role playing, you can start thinking about interesting things like, oh, okay, well, given that, uh, you know, spoiler alert for Final Fantasy X, right? Given that Titus is this, you know, imagined manifested entity by the faith and I, the player, am not, what can that say about informing our relationship? And suddenly things like the fact that there are these hidden places that you can actually only get to from the map, like the, you know, Baj Temple where you find um, Anima, right? Kind of this knowledge that it wouldn't make sense for Titus to possess and that seems to almost like transcend his relationship to the world. That becomes an interesting cipher for thinking about the way in which you engage with that world that I don't, I don't think takes the player out of that world or makes it less of a presence-inducing thing for them, right? It just changes the way in which you're present in that world. Yeah, I think so, yeah. And I, I've got two thoughts on this. One, on the aspect of Returnal, which is interesting because, as you said, it is part of the game's mechanic that the map, the mini-map in Returnal can get scrambled and then you don't, you lose some kind of overview. It That shows uh, how important the mini-map is, but it's also something that is a little bit of a different issue because in Returnal you don't have an open world in which you need that you need to familiarize yourself with and that you get acquainted with, right? Um, because the minimap, at least when I played Returnal, I think was mostly there, and I'm talking about only the one that is constantly on your screen, uh, to s- quickly see from which angle enemies are coming from, right? Or when they are basically behind you and so on. I think that was the way in which I used the minimap predominantly in Returnal. Oh, I don't know oh, about that. I mean, that. we don't need to turn this into a eternal deep dive, but I yeah. at least, you know, <laughs> granted it's different because, you know, the, yeah, but the, <laughs> yeah. seriously, that this is actually just now a eternal podcast. Surprise <laughs> listeners. Yeah. No, but I mean, granted that it's a different kind of map and abstract relationship because the topology of the world is different than a lot of, you know, other games because every time you respawn, the rooms are in a different relationship to each other. But I, at least as a player, and again, like this is interesting because even just talking about maps in this way like gives us a new language notice for talking about the different relationships in which we as two different players stood to Returnal, right? Because you, as you say, used it mostly for enemy orientation. I actually really relied on those maps and abstract representations in order to get a better understanding of the various rooms that compose the different biomes in the game and figure out like, you know, where weapons might be hidden, where different objects are, whether I might be missing something, especially when those rooms are particularly vast, right? And so for me, it was actually pretty similar to many of the maps in other games, whereas for you, it wasn't. And that that might say something interesting about our different modes of engagement with Returnal as well. Yeah, I think it's it's probably the fact that it's uh, 
randomly generated every time that made me uh, remark on it as being something that I use predominantly for enemy orientation because obviously uh, I would totally agree the map that you can bring up on the screen that's like the whole map that's definitely something that I always use to uh, to check on whether there are any kind of uh, gray zones anything that looks like there might be another door or something of the sort but uh, I, th I think the second thought that I wanted to uh, uh, propose is maybe even the more uh, important one in our overall discussion because uh, Aaron you've remarked already on the fact that there's an, an epistemic disconnect right between player and avatar and uh, that made me think of the of, of the observation that often minimaps are there to basically balance out a pre-existing epistemic disconnect because oftentimes we have the situation that the avatar or the character you know, the, the protagonist is someone who is familiar with the area. Like the, the characters in uh, in GTA, they know their way around, uh, what was it? Not Los Santos, but yes, it was Los Santos, right? Los Santos, yeah, or San Andreas Los Santos, or whatever. Yeah, Los Santos, yeah. San Andreas, <laughs> Liberty City. Vice City, Liberty City, yeah. yeah. The, all, our, all our parody so, cities. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> so the characters basically know their way around. Um not in every game, but in, in, in quite some open world games, whereas players do not. They are completely new to those worlds, and so the the access to the minimap is basically a way to uh, bring them on the same epistemic level, roughly, right? Stefan, let me ask you something. Um, it's, it's interesting to me that in terms of these like abstract representations of navigation, it seems like you keep going back to open world games, right? And, and I'm not just raising that to, you know, ask you to define what you mean by open world games because people can mean a different a bunch of different things but i think i roughly grasp what you're talking about I, i'm more interested just like what do you think is material about these maps having particular challenges with open world games rather than more linear and constricted games because as far as i can see so far it seems like the same issues would manifest in either of those cases well i think for me, the difference is that an open world game, such as, you know, the GTA games, Red Dead Redemption, Yakuza, whatever, are games in which you, uh, in which it is absolutely material that you gain a sense of space or a sense of place, I should rather say, that you have an orientation of where, let's say, your home base is where the next uh, objective is, where maybe stores are and such things, right? Uh, how do you find your way to the beach? <laughs> you know, just as an as an example, um, and I think to me that kind of sense of place, and I'm I'm specifically distinguishing between space and place, as in place as something that is lived in, as something that feels as a place that I can, to a certain degree, um, inhabit. Um, I think that's that is absolutely crucial, and for me, that's basically the overall point that I'm trying to gear at. For me, my, my sense of place in any kind of open world game that I've played so far was significantly better as soon as I had turned off the minimap. Because then I'm starting to think about the place differently. I'm thinking about, okay, so I memorized something like in Yakuza, there's a place, uh, Hello Work, that's what it's called. It's a place where you can change character jobs and such things. A pretty vital point on the map. And I use this, like, at the beginning as a point of orientation. So I always know where I am in relation to this one, to this spot, and then I map out the area in my head without always having to look at a minimap. That's basically the experience that I'm gearing at. It's a completely, it's, it's I would say, a more involved or more, more uh, actively constructed sense of, of place. Yeah. I feel very similarly because one of, uh, one of the challenges for me to get, to even continue with open world games is that um, and I know not every, not every gamer shares this, but I do feel like if I don't have some sort of limitation or context, I just feel like I'm adrift. And I think that, um, open world games for me, like when I played Skyrim for the first time, I, I was not interested because of that arrow at the top that led you everywhere. And as soon as I stopped looking at that and I said, okay, well, where am I in relation to Whiterun, for example, and I tried to kind of map it out, that almost became the game that propelled me forward in the narrative. And I think that um, 
it depends on what open world game you're talking about, for example. But I'm of two minds now because I, I agree with you on that point, Stefan. But I also really like what you were saying where the minimap almost becomes a um, uh, an entry point into the avatar's knowledge of the, of the area um, so that you, as the outsider, you're not playing an outsider to this area. So the minimap almost steps in and says, here's some here's how you can quickly be connected to that knowledge that this character has before you've entered the story. So I can, I can see it from either perspective. Although I will say when I open up a game like Red Dead Redemption 2, I'm immediately like, all right, if I don't know, if I can't orient myself, I don't know that I'm going to continue with this. Yeah. (laughs) I'll tell you guys a real world parallel to this. And Dan has had the displeasure of having me drive him places multiple times across our lives. (laughs) So he can corroborate this. I can live in the same place for literally years and not be able to navigate in my head beyond maybe a two-mile radius of my home. It's horrible. Dan, we, we lived, what, like like maybe 10 miles apart from each other when we were both in New Hampshire, right? Yeah, not even. And it took me <laughs> one, maybe— One uh, road, Aaron. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, not exa- I'm not exaggerating. Maybe three years of driving to your house before I could do it without a map. Um, wow. Yeah. Which, yeah. So <laughs> I'm garbage, right? That's the point of that anecdote. No, no, no. Um, I think what's interesting to that and hopefully for people beyond me who have, you know, no capacity to navigate beyond Google maps. Um, I think it's, it's really interesting to think about the ways in which players have the opportunity to engage with and even construct these abstract representations of video game fictions and how that might relate to the storytelling um, and the opportunities that are afforded when stories are developed in a way that does not present the mini-map but almost creates an implicit mini-map or causes you to develop that, right? Whether that's you, Dan, thinking about where your uh, Dragonborn is in relation to Whiterun or kind of the classic canonical example that I think a lot of people rightly talk about are, you know, the Dark Souls games or the Bloodborne games where there's no map, there's no way to, you know, look at an abstract representation of it. And in fact, one of the, (laughs) I think, funniest side quests in Dark Souls 2 outright mocks the idea of trying to map these worlds by virtue of an NPC trying to develop this map and slowly being driven insane as as the player goes more places and unlocks more lights on this kind of cursed representation of Drang Lake, right? Um, But it's fascinating to me because almost by virtue of that game not having a map, the player is able to develop kind of a a more inborn sense of of knowledge and know-how of how to get around that world, right? And not of the kind where you could map out the whole world. That's the point, I think, of that Dark Souls 2 quest, but just... Uh, an almost more intuition-driven knowledge of where you have to go and how these different areas connect just by virtue of dying so many times and having to navigate the obstacles that manifest, right? So is that more realistic or creating more of a real-life presence in that world? I would say probably not, right? I mean, that's not the relationship I at least feel like I have to the real world, but it does affect a unique aesthetic in terms of the player's relationship to the worlds of Bloodborne and Dark Souls, which I think they would argue is is very distinct from worlds that have more of a regular map-based representation of how to orient oneself and get around. So I think that kind of like storytelling language embedded in map choices is, I, I think, a really cool way in which video games can have different stories based on the choices that are made there. It is, and it, the real-world comparison is also really interesting because there's there's a very peculiar distinction or difference between video game worlds and, and the real world, and that is that if I walk uh, through a shopping street, then I know that I can enter every store, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe not, maybe not during a global pandemic, actually, but in no, most other maybe cases. Not. <laughs> maybe not, but I'll be able to see whether they're open or not. I can speak uh, to yeah, people yeah. and so on. In, in something like a game like uh, GTA, uh, Red Dead Redemption, Yakuza, even though they're not really that comparable since Yakuza's map is much smaller um, and much more uh, lived in, kind of. Everything's crammed more together, which is beautiful, I think. It, it is a problem that occurs from a design perspective as well. I often feel like 
developers use the minimap as a shortcut in order not to have to bother with proper signposting in a game, right? <laughs> because when I walk down a street in, you know, fig in, in like the, the recreation of Yokohama and Yakuza Like a Dragon, then I should be able to see where stores are and I should be able to enter these stores and where restaurants are so I can enter them, you know, which is the case in the game, but not all of them. The only way you can distinguish often is either because the door is more detailed, where <laughs> it's modeled, uh, or you have, basically if you don't have a minimap, then you just walk against every door and like plonk against it uh, like a fool, right? And, and then you learn, yeah, and then you learn over time, okay, certain doors give me a prompt so I can press enter and so on and others don't, but when I press against them, then they open. I think minimaps are often um, used as a, a sort of a cop-out in order not to not to properly deal with or engage with the fact is how can I make a game world feel lived in, feel vibrant, and how can I give off signals to the player, like this is a place where you can go, this is part of basically the game, and this is just a decoration, basically. Okay, yeah, but but let me push back against that for a second too, all right? Mm. Because I think it's, yeah. it's very easy to go from the design perspective and say, well, you know, there are these design limitations where only so many shops and locations can actually have story connected to them, but you need to fill out the window dressing of the world in order to make it feel lived in. You know, the the School of Athens fresco had to have a bunch of other bozos besides Plato and Aristotle in it, even though they're the centerpiece, blah, 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 right? That's that's fine, and, and I, I don't mean to be flippant in terms of that not being true, but I think let's go back to exactly what you and Dan were talking about and advocating for, right, in terms of, like, map representation as a mode of epistemic access to the avatar, right, and what they know and what they care about. I think it's 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 maybe a little more fair to think about it from that storytelling perspective because if you think about a game as a story being told with characters who care about certain things and don't care about other things, right, it stands to reason that a well-fleshed-out uh, avatar with interests and desires and so on might be interested in going to and engaging with certain aspects of the world in which they're embedded and simply wouldn't care about the other ones, right? Now, it would be hard just going into a game and having limited access to an avatar's epistemic set to infer just based on who the avatar is and what they say, which of those places they care about and which they don't, right? So if we think about a, like, a map set within a game, not just as a design norm, but as this um, user interface-based guide and representation of an avatar's epistemic set in games where we're trying to align the player's knowledge and interests with the avatars, then that actually makes a lot of sense to me, right? That yeah, it would totally. help as pointing out, look, these are the things that the avatar cares about. These are the things that the avatar will engage with. And those that are not represented on the map are things that still exist within the context of the world, but that the avatar has no interest in, right? To the point that you can't enter those shops because they simply don't pertain to the avatar and his story. I definitely wholeheartedly agree with that. The only gripe that I have is that I wonder, aren't there better ways to indicate which points are in your argumentation of interest to the avatar or to the party or to the story, rather than basically externalizing them to a small abstraction of the, of the world? Into, in the form of a mini-map. So I, I, I think it's it's totally fair to be thinking about other ways to do that. I will just, I'll put this to you as a contrast class to think about stuff on, right? So I, I just finished my <laughs> first complete playthrough of Scarlet Nexus, which is to say both of the individual Avatar stories. And mm. they approach this challenge in a way that is very common in um, a lot of JRPGs, at least off the top of my head, where if the player is trying to make an avatar go out of bounds on a particular quest, right? And for listeners, because this is a podcast, I just did air quotes around out of bounds. Um, the avatar will stop and say something to him or herself like, oh, I need to go to this other place or, oh, I can't go back there now. And in a lot of ways, like, does that give you more direct access to the avatar's 
epistemic set? Like probably, right? Because the idea is you're reading the avatar's thoughts and, and you have access to that. But in a lot of ways, that feels to me as a player trying to engage with the story a little more contrived and hard to justify than something that's like an abstraction of that world and showing me that knowledge and those interests and those boundaries on the story and the avatar's engagement on a level that's separate from the narrative. Like when it's injected into the main narrative and what the avatar is saying, that almost to me creates more friction with the storytelling than simply imposing it on the level of a map. Totally. It comes down to... Uh, subtlety I think and to being creative and maybe sometimes also a little bit daring in the way to communicate the places of interest to players and I mean places of interest on the on the map places of interest in the fictional world and places of interest in the characters uh, from the character's point of view and I think there are some interesting ways in which that can be done ways that uh, for example, include uh, examples that we won't go into too much detail now because it's going to be too big of, an, of a different conversation. We can have that in another episode, but such things like, um, you know, projected arrows that you have in in Mafia 3 that indicate the direction without you having to glance at the map or something like Ghost of Tsushima where you have like the wind that blows in certain directions. I think there are creative ways to do that. They just came about more recently and they're just, I, I feel like currently maybe that's, that's, uh, a statement that I could give as a concluding thought on, on my side on this subject is that I'm happy to see that more games are trying to explore different ways on how to communicate to players which points are interesting, which points are interactable without having them to divert their attention away from the actual uh, game world. One of the things that I like too, and this will be my last thought on it as well, is um, something that Yakuza Like a Dragon uh, did that I feel like kind of harken back to um, older games, like weirdly like Silent Hill, um, is that there's a really neat camera trick that will happen when you when you reach a point of interest where the perspective changes, where um, it'll either sort of zoom out or it'll be at a canted angle. Something will change so that you're not just full on from Ichiban's perspective anymore. It's sort of like the the camera of the world is telling you, hey, this is a different place, which I think is an interesting way that they used to do it in um, exploratory survival horror games that I was kind of excited to see come uh, be implemented in Yakuza. And I think that's a great last point on which we can all agree, right? Like as the language of video game storytelling continues to develop, even those uh, modes of engagement with the world that used to be the norm and are now kind of antiquated or retro, right? Those can go into the mix with newer innovations in a way where storytellers can be more intentional about why they're imposing these different navigational systems on their world and what they want to do with it, right? I think, as you said, Stefan, it's totally in the nuance. I think that that's part of what actually got me like more excited than I expected to be about this topic as we were getting ready for the episode, because I think like all kinds of different aspects of games that you might not initially expect to have to do with its story, uh, like I've written about in the past with trophies in, in video games, right? I think the layer of maps and navigational systems in games can be a really interesting form of intertext if you think about the perspective that they're imposing on the story as something that is distinct and accessible to the player versus just what the avatar goes through. And so to be able to explore the subtleties of what can be done with those languages and the different ways in which they can relate to each other, I think just poses more and more very cool opportunities for the video game stories we'll see in the future. Beautiful, yeah. Then I would say, uh, dear listeners out there, please let us know how you think of this subject. And I personally would be very curious of whether you, how you handle it when you enter an open world game do you leave the minimap on, which is usually the default setting, or do you are you brave and turn it off and see where the world takes you? Um, and of course, we're going to do a follow up to this one most likely in the coming weeks, where we talk about, where we can go into detail on these alternative ways of you know signposting, signaling, um, and maybe mapping uh, video game worlds. For now, I would say uh, let's move on to some side questing. <laughs> 
as you know, dear listeners, in our side quests, we dive into things that happen within video game culture, things that are going on within our own video game experiences. Uh, my side quest this week is one of this uh, latter kind, because I mentioned before that I've been playing Yakuza Like a Dragon quite extensively, and because it is such a huge game, such an unwieldy game with so many different facets, like this is a this is a, a soap opera, gigantic soap opera with cutscenes where uh, Metal Gear hardcore fans would say like, oh, <laughs> those cutscenes are pretty long. <laughs> and uh, on the other hand, it's like an open world game. It's a turn-based uh, JRPG. It's got lots of uh, silly little side quests. It's a management simulation. It's a go-karting game. It's all of these things. And uh, I was trying to think about how can I talk about my experiences with Yakuza Like a Dragon. And I came to the conclusion that the best thing I could do is I could present tiny diary entries that I myself have written uh, from the perspective of the protagonist, Ichiban Kazuga. And uh, so I hope that uh, this will be the start of a tiny series of uh, my Yakuza uh, diary. And by the way, don't worry, uh, all of you out there who are thinking about playing this game still, I'm not going to spoil anything. So I'm only going to be talking about things that are like maybe sub-stories or absurd encounters within the within the world of um, this recreation of uh, uh, Yokohama. But I'm not going to talk about the actual uh, main story. So here goes my first diary entry from this week. Dear diary, today I adopted a crawfish as a pet. Her name is Nancy-chan. I encountered her on a bridge and presuming she was lost, threw her right back into the river, much to the detriment of a homeless man who approached me and, due to my deposing of the crawfish, wept bitterly. I felt guilty and thus went to search for her, the missing Nancy, which was no difficult feat, for an X-shaped scar prominently decorated her back. The homeless man was overjoyed, and promptly invited me for dinner. Little did I know that for the main course, Nancy-chan was on the menu. Overcome by care for the creature, I bought her out in exchange for a platter of premium sushi and went my way. With me at all times henceforth, my crawfish, Nancy-chan. Ah, fantastic. Pure poetry. (laughs) Oh my goodness. See, inside the the heart of Ichiban Kasuga, he's a poet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure whether he would write it like that, but uh, it's my way of conveying the experience. Of, it's It would be otherwise really hard to convey the absurdity of the things that happen in, in Yakuza Like a Dragon. So I'm going to do it this way, and, and uh, I hope that it will spark, spark the curiosity of some of you listeners out there. And uh, stay tuned if you want to hear... Uh, more of these uh, diary entries. See, this is the problem, though, Stefan, because you read it in that way, and now I want you to, you know, I want there to be like a programmatic artificial intelligence, Stefan, who manufactures and reads diary entries like that for every game that I play. <laughs> <laughs> it can be really cool. I think maybe it will, I'm really looking forward to see how this will change my experience of the game as well, because I'm playing it now, and then whenever an interesting th- scene happens, I think like, hmm, maybe I should write a diary entry about that. I just I I'm in love with the the layers of interpretation that we all just witnessed from a very silly sub story in a Japanese game interpreted by a German person into English using the thoughts of a manifested avatar who is Japanese. <laughs> I, I I'm very pleased. All about a crawfish. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, speaking of intertext, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, number two, Aaron. What have you brought? My side quest is. Uh, Pretty little reflection that actually ties in a little bit to Yakuza because it's about the unlocking of trophies. And Dan, I know you recently uh, completed the trophy run and got the platinum trophy on Yakuza Like a Dragon. Um, I similarly just finished all of the trophies on Scarlet Nexus. Um, A shout out to Bandai Namco. It was truly like a 
dream to, to get a review copy of this because theirs were the very first JRPGs that little Aaron played as a kid uh, back in the day. And so I'm really excited to talk more about Scarlet Nexus um, in upcoming podcasts and, and also probably in an analysis on the site. But unlocking the Platinum got me thinking about um, the order in which we unlock trophies in games. As I mentioned earlier on the podcast, right? I've written something in the past about trophies as uh, a further interpretive layer on the stories of video games. But this time around, I was thinking about what further interpretive or personal meaning um, comes to games from the order in which we choose to unlock those trophies. Because I, I went through Scarlet Nexus and I played both of the different storylines that are in there. And then as I do, and I imagine as you guys do too, right? Um, I immediately went online and looked at the hidden trophy stragglers that I didn't manage to unlock. So I could see, okay, what do I need to do in order to say that, you know, I, I finished all the trophies on this game. It was, it's kind of a funny and unusual experience because typically, you know, whatever hidden trophies I've missed, at least in the games that I play, require like, you know, 20 to 30 extra hours in the game uh, in order to, to finish. But this time I, I messaged Dan, I was like, yeah, you know, it, it's a little bit of a different pace to find the remaining hidden trophies and see that in order to unlock them, you just need to stand in one location and put a bunch of hats on party members and die in a certain way. Mm. So <laughs> bing, bang, boom, get it done in 20 minutes. Uh, but it, it got me thinking about the trophies that we unlock last before we get that um, platinum trophy or, or 100%, you know, depending on what, what console you're playing on. But, but for PlayStation games, right, the platinum trophy, right, represents having gotten all of the other trophies, right? And so one way or another, I feel like there's interesting meaning oftentimes to that last trophy you get before you unlock that. Um, Dan, I know for you, because we've talked a little bit about it in the past, right, you'll oftentimes actually pick out one trophy and save it for last to give it a special meaning. In my case, I've found, looking back on my trophy library, it's often almost the opposite. Like, I will, I'll oftentimes discover what I either found least interesting or hardest about the game when I find whatever trophy still has yet to be unlocked after all the other ones. Uh, but I, I think one way or another that oftentimes says something about us as players. And so I, I wanted to share that perspective with you guys and, and ask you what you think and, and how you treat that final stretch of trophy unlocking before you fully complete a game's trophy. Yeah, I think I often try to prevent it from happening that the last trophy that essentially triggers the delicious pling of a platinum trophy uh, I actively try to prevent this from being some kind of mind-numbing, tedious, random task. So what I often do is I try to um, I try to do my best when I go through the games that I play and be very thorough. That's what I do anyway, not for the sake of trophies, but obviously trophies are an in indicator of how much of an area, for example, I have completed. And then, if possible at all, before I enter, before I hit the point of no return, that will lead me into whatever boss fight there might still be awaiting. That's the point when I usually go around and collect all the trophies so that the last one will then be defeat the, the end boss and then platinum. Mm. Boom. Ah, that's so beautiful. Yep. I'm, I'm pretty similar. I, uh, I remember when I did my uh, Final Fantasy VII playthrough on the PS4, I deliberately did exactly what you just described, Stefan, where the final trophy was defeating Sephiroth and then getting the platinum after that. Um, it doesn't always work out that way. So I, I do find myself, though, trying to make the last one meaningful in some way. And uh, so without spoiling anything for Like a Dragon, I completed uh, the most difficult challenge um, in the game as like my third to last trophy. And I think I, I would have felt, I definitely would have felt uh, accomplished if that had been the one to make the platinum drop. But for me, so that was like a, that was like a fighting, you know, a, a, like a gauntlet of really difficult fights. Um, but for me, uh, Ichiban Kasuga, as we, we just had insight into <laughs> with Stefan's diary entry, is more occupied with the mini games around the, around Yokohama. He's more interested by the kind of silly mundanity that happens. And so I deliberately, as through my reading of the character, made my final trophy be the one to play a bunch of different mini games. 
So I went throughout the town and I think I would typically classify that as something that Stefan just described as one of the more like mind numbing grinding ones. But to me, it was more fun because it was almost like Ichiban's reward for doing the hardest thing is to go and play a, uh, um, you know, a, 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 an arcade um, cabinet of Outrun in one of the Sega arcades. Oh no, that's part of the trophies? Oh god. No, no, not specifically. Oh. Not specifically. <laughs> it's an option for you, but that was for me. I said, it's. I think it's like a number of the a number of mini games that yeah. you played, and I chose like a bunch of the arcade ones. Yeah, so don't worry, you don't have to play Outrun. Oh, I really don't like Outrun. <laughs> <laughs> for me, I'm starting to think more about uh, what it would be like to make that last one especially meaningful. I think it's challenging for me because oftentimes so many trophies are hidden, so you don't know about them beforehand. And I think there are good storytelling reasons to do that. But I also don't want to be in the position of looking up all of those trophies as I'm working through the game for the first time. I, I try really hard in the case of, of basically any game to just engage with it eyes open for the first time without a lot of um, supplementary information let's say right and so as a result typically by the time that i'm doing trophy cleanup i find the last ones uh like i alluded to earlier are, are the ones that i avoid for one way or another like sekiro is a great example of this right because i, I platinumed that a while ago but i was looking back through my trophies and the very last one i got was the shura one which is um basically the trophy for unlocking the the worst possible outcome of the game uh in terms of the the fate of all of the main characters right and so it was it was interesting to me to like realized that was the kind of thing that I was avoiding. And, and I guess that speaks well of my intentions as a player or however you want to interpret it. But I, I will say I, I totally empathize with what you're saying about the platinum unlocking being such a satisfying moment and to have had that happen uh, in the midst of the worst possible outcome of the game uh, did, did uh, lend it a certain flavor, let's say. I think it does, it does color your perception of the game more than we think, because for me, um, at least uh, I, unless it's a game that I truly loved playing, um, I often think that, okay, when the platinum pops, that's it. I'm not probably going to go back to this one. And, um, so it does kind of, you know, it is interesting to think like, all right, what is the last one? So that's kind of my last memory of that game. Yeah. I feel the same way. I, I just had to think of a game that doesn't have any trophies because it's a Nintendo switch game. It's super Mario Odyssey. But it mm. is functionally identical by you having to collect all these moons. And I do remember that I was so glad that when playing Mario Odyssey, there's one particular challenge that is so tedious and so dumb. That's where you... It's, it's probably the, the, the most dumbest challenge in the game where you need to just like do rope jumps uh, in, in, in one level. And oh. you need to time it exactly. And the rope will get faster and faster. And you have to do it like 500 times or something. And then you will unlock a moon. And it's like super terrible. And I was so happy that I did that. I, I chewed my way through it, even though it was completely, completely energy draining, to then afterwards go into the hardest challenge of the game and actually complete it. And then you get this nice, you know, like, thank you for playing and boom, you have got all the moons. And it's like, wow, fantastic. If I would have done it the other way around, I think I would have gone away, walked away from the game with a very different impression little bitter about it probably yeah <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah it's like with, with final fantasy 7 remake to to offer a different case than the one that that you said with your experience of it dan um my last trophy in that as i think is the case probably for many people was the, the game's equivalent of 27 dresses where you have to go through multiple playthroughs to uh have all of the permutations of the different outfits that they uh, wear in Walmart. Walmart. Thank you. Wow. Yeah. It's <laughs> been a while. <laughs> maybe I've even, maybe I've repressed that specific aspect <laughs> yeah. of the game in Walmart because of this trophy, in fact. Right. But um, speaking of tedium, <laughs> but uh, I, I love that game so much. I love its trophies. But yeah, it, it's, it's funny because um, finishing Scarlet Nexus, right? I did almost feel a little bit robbed in the trophy completion that there wasn't anything that ridiculously hard or off the beaten path in order to do in order to get the platinum. So I, I feel like there is maybe some truth to the, the, uh, 
I don't know if it's a masochistic tendency, but the desire of players to have to do something really, really hard in order to unlock all of the trophies. But then when you also end on that note of just doing something that's tedious and, and feels unwarranted, um, or as you've said in the past, stuff on disrespectful of your time, uh, it can certainly leave a certain taste in your mouth too. So maybe there's no way to be perfectly satisfied with it, but it's definitely an interesting tapestry of experiences. Listeners, of course, uh, if if you have your own particular methods for choosing the last parts of a game that you uh, like to unlock before putting it down or being completely done with it, whether that's trophy-based or not, uh, we'd always love to hear from you. Uh, shout us out on social media, or you can write to us at podcast.withaterriblefate.com, or leave a comment on the site. Always love to hear what you think about these things. Now, we've in- announced it at the very beginning of this episode, Dan. You wanted to give us a brief glimpse into the Game Fest that you, or the what was it called? Like the, the video game convention, this retro game convention that you attended last week? Yeah, it was uh, a classic game fest in Austin, Texas. So um, we recently moved to Texas and we're about an hour and a half away from Austin. And so uh, while my while my girlfriend was back home in New England, um, enjoying time with her family, I uh, heard about and decided to go to the classic game fest in Austin. It was a small convention um, but it's the first thing that I've been, I've been to since the pandemic. And I felt like it was really rejuvenating to go and be around that kind of community. Um, it wasn't a huge, uh, event. It was, you know, very focused on, um, retro games. And really the reason that I went is because as we had been talking about in my previous side quests, I've, I have a very strong interest in the collection of video games and uh, preserving older titles. And so I went just to honestly, almost like a museum trip where I could maybe pick something interesting up for myself. Um, and it was so nice to uh, to just go and, you know, people were mingling with one another and it was just a big sort of uh, selling floor where a lot of vendors were there. And so obviously it was nice to go and see the classic game stores having all of their different games on on display but what i really felt was so nice about it and that i'm looking forward to for uh future conventions like pax and and gamescom and things like this is um it was just nice to see uh people who had created their own things and were selling them um and and talking to other people who were excited about them like there was a um, a person who had um, an entire stall for like reproduction carts that he had made, you know, putting basically emulated versions of games on old lookalike cartridges um, that he spent a lot of time 3D printing and doing artwork for. And then there were, you know, other folks who were selling handcrafted game trinkets. Like I got some crocheted Pokeballs that I have on my desk now. Um, and it was just, it reminded me that um, this is a really, I think, important part of being engaged with the video game community. Um, and it, it, I think what I like most about a smaller convention like that is that it didn't feel as commercial as PAX can sometimes feel. It felt much more like what I imagine old Star Trek conventions felt like, <laughs> where it was many people who liked the same thing coming together and just being excited to be around one another. Um, so it was a really excellent time. I had a, I had a really nice day in Austin, which is a lovely city. I'm not breaking any new ground by saying it's very cool. Um, and, uh, it was, it was just a, a overall pleasant experience. And for anybody wondering what I walked away with, I did find, um, a pristine copy of the Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time Master Quest that was released as almost a promotional disc for the GameCube. So, I picked that up for my brother, Matt, who is over the moon that I was able to find it. So very fun, uh, just experience connecting with people and being out in the world again. Well, you're a great brother to have not only picked that up, but actually given it away to, uh, to your brother after acquiring it. (laughs) See, it's, it's all part of my plan to, uh, you know, go into the Hughes video game library as you know cultural protectors it stays in the family trust that's right yes (laughs) exactly (laughs) oh i'll tell you it's it's really one of the things that i've missed most during all this global pandemic uh and i i never really would have 
I think, gone to a video game convention of, of any kind if we hadn't had the good fortune to start uh, attending and speaking at PAX's. But you're, I, I totally uh, agree with you. I mean, it's it's a whole other dimension to be able to engage with other people who not only love that same hobby that you love so much, but also do such creative things with it that you never would have thought of. Uh, I'll always think back to um, a creator whom I know is now one of our mutual favorites, Dan, um, the guy behind Ukiyo-e Heroes. Uh, and listeners, if you haven't heard of them, we'll definitely put a link in the show notes. Uh, but this is a guy who has basically made this whole business out of doing ukiyo-e style representations of characters and scenes from video games and anime and other just modern popular culture, but stylized like these old artistic Japanese representations, really just beautiful works. I own a couple of these. I know Dan does too. Um, but that's the kind of thing that I never would have thought of uh, if we hadn't just run across him um, selling his wares at a PAX. So conventions are wonderful for that kind of stuff. With a Terrible Fate is probably the only video game podcast that ends on an admiration of Japanese xylography. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. One of the many, uh, many unique value adds that we uh, contribute to the conversation. So everybody out there, thank you very much for listening. If you enjoy the show, then please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash with a terrible fate. Feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts and find all of our written content at withaterriblefate.com. Of course, follow us on Facebook and Twitter or send an email to podcast at withaterriblefate.com with your thoughts and questions. And then we'll talk again next week. Mm-hmm.